0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an
1: IFG live event.
0: Welcome, everybody. Another day, another IFG Brexit podcast. In our discussion yesterday, the crack IFG Brexit team took you around the deal, 1,246 pages in 80 minutes. Today, we're going to delve into what it means for businesses in the UK and what that new post-Brexit trading regime is really going to mean in practice And also look at what the government needs to do to help them out in the Count's Fingers three and a half days left. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by a top panel. Many of them will be familiar to you from previous IFG podcasts. Uh, Just to start off with, I'm Joe Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. And I'm delighted to be joined by Customs and Borders expert, Dr. Anna Jazewska, who seems to have uh, tapped into a potentially quite lucrative and useful vein in being a Customs and Borders expert. Sally Jones from EY is an expert on services, which some might see as the rather overlooked element in this deal. And Ali Renison, the Brexit voice of the Institute of Directors, has been doing sterling work in warning businesses about what they need to do to get ready but also warning government about what they need to do to help businesses get slightly more ready. And some of you will have seen her getting increasingly frustrated uh, over Christmas uh, at the government there. And they're joined by the one and only Maddie timmant Jack from the Institute for Government. Sorry, some of you will have noticed this is an all-woman panel. Uh, Well, guys, we'll give you a chance to be on a panel sometime soon. But for the next hour or so, you're going to listen to Women Talking Brexit. Uh, So, the deal's landed. The Prime Minister joked that people could substitute their Christmas pudding with deal reading. Perhaps that was part of his newly unveiled obesity strategy. Uh, I'm sure that all our panellists have indeed spent the last days coming to grips with that new deal. So, I just want to start off with a first reaction from all of them. What did you make of the deal? And in particular, any surprising inclusions or Emissions, Anna. Any surprises?
2: I think, broadly speaking, we this is what we expected in terms of. It's a trade agreement. We know what they look like. We know what they cover. This one is pretty much what we expected on the whole. I think what surprised me, and I think it surprised not only me but a lot of people, is how um, shallow it is in terms of things like uh, SPS or technical regulation uh the lack of certain provisions that we potentially uh, thought might might be included that would make uh cross-border trade slightly easier and less less uh problematic for businesses I think that was a, a surprise we've heard that's a lot interesting
0: that, that's something we're going to go into a bit more depth the uh, where there were easements we might have expected that we didn't get Ali what's your snap verdict on uh, on the deal?
3: Um I think my views are probably colored by the one the thing landscape. that unites um the one thing that unites uh business really across the landscape and that is everyone was asking for time to adjust and I think the lack of it you know we knew we weren't going to extend transition but the lack of any kind of finite adjustment period at all is disappointing you're having to look for what I call a transition by stealth instead, going through the text, going through what guidance there is out there. And I think there's more at the moment on the deal from the EU side than the UK at present. You have to really parse through the details to figure out um, what is being from a unilateral perspective on each side is sort of maybe being phased in in certain areas, but you know, fish effectively or fishermen get more of a transition than most of business. And the irony in that is that I don't think the fishermen wanted the
0: transition, whereas the rest of industry did. I think our fishermen didn't want to transition. I think the EU's fishermen probably did. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, I was probably um, a little bit pleasantly surprised by some of the um, provisions on digital and data. I think that this is something that, um, no, we don't have the adequacy decision in place yet. We have the other sort of transition measure that we have. There was some interesting provisions in there. I think um, you hear it from sort of uh, sort of tech groups like Tech UK that they're pleasantly surprised that it looks like an agreement to build on and sort of benchmark for the future. So that's probably one of the few positive areas I think that actually looks ahead to the future and, and sort of shared interests. Um, and also, you know, uh, there's a lot of change there on services. I don't want to steal Sally's thunder. I was intrigued and I haven't gone through all the detail yet about sort of some of the lists in there, um, uh, sort of almost sector by sector. And I think you see some of that actually in places like NAFTA in the sort of US North American Free trade agreement with Canada, Mexico, it really goes into sort of sectoral lists. So that'll be an interesting one to get into the detail of.
0: That uh, That is interesting. Ali, do you think we haven't got a phasing in period because... The EU refused it or the UK didn't ask. Do you know anything about the backdrop there? I'd love someone to ask the question journalist <laughs> uh,
3: you okay,
0: know it, it's, us, if you want to come on our podcast we're very uh, happy to it's, ask um, you that.
3: It's, it's interesting because I think you know uh, it's the one thing again at all business roundtables that particularly in the last few months that we've had with governments the one thing that unites industry across the landscape pharmaceuticals life sciences chemicals you know I think people have given up on even sort of some of the mutual recognition provisions um, I think there was definitely some disappointment Expected disappointment around mutual recognition of qualifications, but really I'm surprised that there was no really sort of baseline for conformity assessments and a sort of sweeping mutual recognition deal that some had expected and hoped for in sort of the um, manufacturing industry in certain areas.
0: Sally, your your good news, bad news analysis, quick headline take.
4: So, the best news of all in services was for lawyers, Uh, it was a big win for the legal services sector in that they can practice home state title uh, between the two. And that's a dull way of saying that English lawyers can practice English and Welsh law in the EU. um, And there was a real fear that they couldn't do that, uh, which would effectively have been an absolute prohibition on their ability to trade at all, rather than uh, simply an additional cost. So law Mm -hmm. law was a big win of all of the services sectors and unexpectedly so. I think um, I think I agree with Ali when she talks about the data adequacy kicked down the can six months. Uh, that was also some, something of a surprise and a very positive one. And then if I were to pick one last positive that I wasn't expecting, it was the reciprocal UK permission for EU um, companies to take part in government procurement in the UK, which which is definitely a big plus. Uh, across the board so there were there were some silver linings in there without a doubt but the dark clouds are bigger than I was expecting as well I don't think there's much that the other others haven't already called out but I have to call out from a services perspective two things really one is uh, mutual recognition of professional qualifications or lack of which was not a hugely unexpected move, but disappointing nevertheless. Um, and the other is just the sheer scale of the carve-outs from the EU side on services provision. So um, forgive forgive me if I'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs, but the way FTAs, are, free trade agreements are typically constructed, is you have the commitments made by each side, and then the reservations, which are the carve-outs that individual member states choose to make. And when you go down the services sector-by-sector sector, um, reservations, they are huge and sweeping and leave enormous gaps in market access for UK services providers.
0: That's really interesting. Sally, do you have any idea why the lawyers were so successful, why they succeeded where others like architects or accountants failed?
4: So there's a couple of observations to make. I can't weigh up how, how and where the differences came in, but I think there are a couple of features which may have made a difference. So on the architects firstly, they, their regulators play really nicely together. So I think it's in part because the laws of physics are the same across the world and therefore a house designed in Germany will obey the same laws of physics that a house built in the UK will, and therefore there's quite a lot of commonality. But the, at a regulator-to-regulator regulator level, architects have found more alignment than many other services providers have. That's, that's one part of it. A second part is that English and Welsh contract law is the law of business. It, it absolutely is. Consumers across the EU would much prefer to continue to be able to draw up business contracts under English and Welsh law because it's familiar and stable and well understood and effectively becomes the common language of law for both sides. So there was, there was vested interest from the EU side to allow English and Welsh professionals to be able to apply their trade in the EU going forward from a consumer perspective.
0: So that's interesting. So it's actually to the benefit of the EU as much in some ways as to our lawyers.
4: It's one of those win-win situations. Absolutely right. When it comes to auditors and accountants, just as a for example, then there are plenty of excellent uh, EU-based firms, just as there are excellent UK based firms so there's a less obvious self interest from the perspective to allow UK auditors to practice in the EU and vice versa
0: that's really interesting and finally maddie any uh, any top line surprise, occlu- inclusions or omissions
1: well i think I, mean, I think the others have sort of covered um all the sort of key ones relating to trade. I guess the only thing I would I would add and this is I know this is not the what we're going to be discussing in in this um in this hour but I think the sort of uh, surprise or positive um on security I think is quite important to note that actually I think that the agreement went further than necessarily we were expecting in terms of trying to protect some of the um sort of ways that law enforcement authorities can cooperate between the UK and the EU and I think that that's sort of a positive and I think again that sort of picks up picking up on Sally's point it, it really is a bit of a win-win for both and i think that's that's why we see that because actually um you know the uk the eu does rely on on um uk capability in a lot of areas and 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 it's sort of you know it's about keeping citizens safe on both sides of the channel so there's a sort of a, a sort of genuine need and and sort of desire to to continue to be able to do that so i think that's the sort of other sort of positive that i say we haven't discussed but um i think we'll be putting that to one side for this discussion
0: Yeah. No, that's useful to note that because everybody always refers to this as a trade agreement, but it does go further and security elements are going to be very important going forward. But let's start, uh, let's go back to trade. And in particular, let's start with trading goods and let's start unpacking the border, so to speak. Anna, uh, if I'm a UK firm, a GB firm, more accurately, probably, who wants to export to the EU after the first of January? How uh, want to export goods? How different is that border going to look for me? I think the
2: the most important thing to to point out here is that compared to what we talked about two weeks, three weeks ago, that deal doesn't necessarily change all that much in terms of border procedures. Things are pretty much the same as they were uh, a couple of weeks ago. The biggest change, of course, is the tariffs. The fact that the deal removes tariffs provided that goods meet rules of origin, which now we finally have and we've we've actually seen. So provided that the goods you want to export as a UK company meet these rules of origin, you would be able to uh, send the goods to the EU and the importer in the EU would not have to pay tariffs, which is obviously a plus. What the what the difficulty is is uh, with the fact that companies in in the UK, uh, especially the ones that have not traded or imported or exported, so traded with non-EU countries so far, don't really know uh, what rules of origin are. I mean, they don't necessarily know what customs uh, formalities are, and not to mention rules of origin. So all this is very new for companies. Companies have tried over the last couple of years. And especially uh, over the last year, to to understand what is required from them in terms of export, in terms of customs, uh, but they haven't necessarily gone as far as origin because we never we, there was always this uncertainty whether we will have a deal or not. And now not only do they have to understand uh, customs and import and export declarations, but also this this additional layer rules of origin. Now we're hearing that there is a period of easement of of, of simplifications introduced and unlike with everything else where we have simplifications on the UK side which would be important for our importers this will also be uh, applicable uh, on the EU side meaning that there will be a period in which these companies will have time to understand what paperwork is required and what it all actually means but again as you mentioned I think that that was the key I think you said at the beginning of this conversation three and a half days Um, and, and, and we're still talking about this in the, in a context of we're, we're waiting to see the guidance. We, we are hearing this. We're awaiting formal confirmation of how it's going to work. Because one thing is whether this easement was, is actually going to be introduced. And then the other thing is how it's going to be done in practice. And there are many but ways to do it. That's not in the deal. No, no, that's not in the deal. That's, and again, I think that's another point to mention in terms of practical aspects of it. You have a deal and you have some agreements and provisions in the deal, but unless you see for, for many uh, customs aspects of it, unless you see guidance, implementation, you don't really know how the, all this is going to work.
0: And moving on, you mentioned when you were going through your sort of emissions and inclusions, Anna, that, that there were fewer of these easements, these sort of things to make moving goods over the border uh, easier for businesses than we might have expected. Uh, you mentioned, I think, SPS, so sanitary, sanitary and phytosanitary checks, um, but we do have this uh, this sort of mutual recognition of trusted trader schemes. I'm just wondering, you know, if you could just tell us a bit about how this might affect sort of individual businesses who might be caught or might be able to benefit from those uh, those provisions.
2: Yes, yes, we do have some easements. So the trusted trader so AEO scheme is one of those uh, examples. We have some simplifications or some um, potential certifications for rural traffic in terms of of clearance. But coming back to the trusted trader, I think it's a very good example of how a deal is different Of reaching a deal is different from actual practice and, and having guidance and having uh, something tangible for, for businesses. So we, in the deal, it, it mentions that AEO will be recognized. We know what the EU uh, EU's trusted trader scheme looks like. We know um how how to apply we know what conditions companies need to fulfill we obviously have some of uh, of uh, companies in the in the UK authorised to be trusted traders however we've also talked about for the last couple of years we've talked about the fact that SMEs or new companies cannot uh, necessarily apply to be a trusted trader under the current um, under under the current application model so there also talk about introducing a new trusted trader program in the UK using this opportunity to modify the existing trusted trader program none of that has happened and the deal only mentions it, it's not really very specific it just mentions that um there will be uh, mutual recognition provided that that both uh both schemes both, both programs are, are similar and that it will allow some simplifications in terms of uh companies that hold the status and are trusted traders will not necessarily Uh, be subject to the same amount of checks uh, and so on. But but these, again, these are not simplifications that uh, will make a massive difference on the border. The fact that you uh, might necessarily have to go through a physical check or the fact that um, uh, your application or your your, uh, declaration will be processed quicker, that doesn't necessarily make a massive difference. It's a simplification for trusted traders, but not really uh, something that will make... Uh, the border process completely different from what it would have been without
0: it. Ali, you wanted to come in
3: on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, just to pick up some of Anna's point, um, I don't actually think, and I can't remember, Anna may correct me, there was some hope way back for mutual recognition of AEOs that may or may not have been in the text. And I don't know if we got actually anywhere with that. And I think that she's very right to pick up on the documentation versus what does the border look like? Because I think for so long, the focus from politicians, what have you, has been on, you know, what are the checks, controls going to be? Well, it's actually about what's the level of documentation you're asking businesses to suddenly do in a short space of time. And again... You have the text, then you have to transpose it into guidance and transpose it into your sort of domestic infrastructure settings. And, for example, customs cooperation is not just a preserve of the EU. It's a mixed competence in some areas. So it'll be interesting to see, for example, you know, Norway and Sweden do a lot of customs cooperation, even though um, Norway's not in the EU itself. And so it'll be interesting to see any bilateral moves that may come up with Ireland or France, for example, in future as well.
0: So have we seen any more guidance from government since this deal was was done on any of these customs or regulatory processes. Ali, you know, have you been able, I assume you're sitting on top of the Gov.uk slash transition website to see if anything's been forthcoming, has it? I haven't seen too, too much. I mean, we're also
3: expecting, we usually get sent this um, from from government as well. I've been sent some forwarded on a few bits and pieces, for example, like... um, there was uh, safety and security declarations that were supposedly going to be um, for certain products and certain pellets was going to be, I think, waived by the EU. But again, that sort of came through a very roundabout sort of sectoral um, passing on of certain guidance. So it's not, I don't think, comprehensive out there. And um, hoping to have some more guidance on the government's approach to rules of origin as well this week. But, you know, everyone's waiting for a lot of the kind of the nuts and bolts rather than just the, the dry legal text. And, and even beyond that, businesses won't just need the guidance. You know, this is why they need, and we'll probably come to this later, more fiscal support because no guidance is ever going to be anything other than generic and companies have very company specific questions in terms of how they make use of an FTA. And I'm sure Sally has loads, as designers, sort of experience and sort of, uh, understanding why is it the businesses don't tend to why is the take up of fda is not as great as it could be well because they're very complicated documents to actually make use of
0: particularly outside of tariffs and and when you say not taking them up does that mean that some companies might actually choose to pay tariffs even though they don't have to just because it's too difficult not to that's certainly been the contention
3: and i'm sure sort of both anna and sort of sally in there. Um, professional private practices have actually seen that. So I'll I'll defer to them on how how common it is. But, um, you know, I think it depends on the size of the tariff, certainly. Okay,
0: Sally, you wanted to come in? I
4: did. Thank you. Just a couple of observations. The first is that uh, I've literally just gone onto the YouGov YouGov website on on my mobile phone. And the last update was the 24th of December. So no, there is not a whole swathe of guidance coming out from government. (laughs) And I think no we're not expecting it to either which is which i'm entirely with ali on this it's it's deeply frustrating bordering on negligent frankly to release documentation on boxing day that businesses are expected to comply with by new year's eve is just wrong uh up and down wrong no no two ways about it in my mind um that was my first observation Uh, the second is coming on to the, the usability or otherwise of free trade agreements So uh, the first thing to note is that free trade agreements are really not easy to pick up and read as a layperson. So in the same way that you can't just pick up a book of any other law, so too you can't pick up a free trade agreement and understand the context in which it's written or the way that other referred documents feed into it or even basic language. And I come across this all the time with reservations, which is a particular bugbear of mine. Uh, which are referred to as unbound when a country is is wheeling back from, rowing back from the commitment it would otherwise have made. But people tend to think that unbound sounds like a positive word and therefore it's a good thing when actually it it really isn't. And it's, It's that kind of failure to understand how a free trade agreement is constructed and put together makes it really difficult for the layperson to use them.
0: So, Sally, what does unbound mean? Because I'm not experienced at reading trade agreements and I was going through this and looked at all these unbounds and wondered what it meant. What does it mean?
4: So, in effect, uh, uh, in the case of the EU, using this one as an illustrative example, the commitments are made at an EU level, but the reservations are made at country level. So the EU collectively makes a set of commitments, then individual countries will say, hang on a minute, not me. I am different and special and therefore I need a different treatment that is separate from and lesser than the commitment that is otherwise made. When a reservation is unbound, it means that country is entirely reserving to itself the right to row back from the commitment made in any, any way that it so chooses. So it's but, it's, it's a really <laughs> big deal. It's, the same is true with something like negative listing. Negative listing is a good thing because a negative list sets out all of the things um, that are included unless they are specifically excluded. So you're always looking for negative listing as a way of constructing a free trade agreement because it's the most open way of doing things. But people tend to think negative listing feels negative. We want positive listing, which is where you have to explicitly name everything that will be included. So you always want negative listing, but the language isn't intuitive to people who haven't spent a lot of time playing with this kind of legal text. So you need guidance. Business desperately needs guidance from government to help it understand what it needs to do straight away, because it's not something that you can just pick up and work out
0: for yourself. That's, that's really interesting. Anna, you want to come in and I'm going to ask Maddie whether she thinks government's on the point of issuing new guidance, whether the government's ready for this. Anna?
2: I, I just wanted to reinforce this point around guidance. I think, you know, with so many different areas, and also so many different easements on both sides where something might not be applicable for the first three months or the first six months and so on. I think all of us on this call, um, we, I mean, we're checking the website all the time. We're obviously on top of this. So that's, this is our um, that's what we do every waking hour of, of the day, and 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 yet we're still confused. With, if we're confused, you know, what about businesses as Sally mentioned? What I think we really need is a very clear guidance on both sides on, on what becomes um, mandatory at which point. So the first three months, UK, what you need to do; the first three months, EU, what you need to do, and so on and so forth, including on rules of origin, which is the new piece of. Uh, um uh, of, of guidance, so perhaps a joint guidance on on, on, on uh, maybe not necessarily drafted by both but guidance that would provide clarity for businesses on both sides of the of the channel and uh, including rules of origin whereby you know with three and a half days we're very it's very likely that we'll be in a situation where on the on Monday or on Tuesday companies will be moving goods across the border without actually knowing whether tariffs will be applicable or not because they will not necessarily have enough time to understand whether rules of origin can be applied retrospectively. So can you can you apply for the certificate retrospectively? Uh, do they get to meet the rules of origin or not? Meaning they will be trading, because they have to, but they will not necessarily understand what this deal
0: means for them. Ali, has there been any attempt by government to summon you all to some sort of... You no know, roundtable briefing. So at the least you can answer questions from your from your members. I know that they've done mm. some various things to summon your calls with Michael mm. Gove and the transition team in the cabinet office. that I mean, any sign of that? uh in the run-up to
3: without wishing to um trade too many confidential details of government engagement i mean we've had those meetings in the run-up to it um i don't think we have anything as yet um you know lots of stuff is is always at short notice that's the way in which government excuse me that's the way in which government works generally speaking um you know particularly when something is sensitive to negotiation but we now are out of negotiation so i have a feeling or I'd like to think that things are going to pick up rather rapidly this week. Um, in particular, I think, uh, just to amplify Anna's point in the week, two weeks and weeks after the sort of first, because I think what we've got a solid chunk of our members at about 40% at least who constantly said, and that's before the pandemic, we just cannot be fully ready until we have all the detail. We can only adjust after the fact. And so there's going to be a lot of people wanting to adjust and they're going to need the guidance to work through that. And that's where you really need, um, the government, sort of on hand, the sort of resources that have been made available, the border impact center, et cetera, et cetera. But that's when I think the crunch time is going to happen because then you know, is what the difference between what the text says and what's happening at the border, and can sort of hopefully smooth out any issues as we go, um, because that's where companies are going to feel it most. And we're trying, you know, we're trying to cut down on unpleasant surprises after the fact. That's what this is, and I think that's particularly going to be true not only for for goods, but particularly for services where. The amount of just looking through my emails of, you know, you can tell that businesses just don't know what they need to know for services because it's so much more opaque in terms of understanding what the differences are, not least when you get into the kind of detail by sector
0: that and reservations than Sally's talking about. I'm going to come into services in a second, yeah. uh, but I just want to finish off a bit more on the border. Yeah. Can,
1: I, can I come in on Anna's
3: point as quickly? I think that joint guidance, this sounds like a conversation we've been having on Twitter, Anna. Um, you know, that point is so important and it, you can't do it for everything, fine. But at the end of the day, and I think some of us are a little bit scarred by dealing with things like, you know, do companies need an economic operator number from the EU, whether they're importing or exporting? And I remember getting different views on that. I remember having this discussion with Anna last year about, you know, what was the different guidance saying? So as much as possible now that we have a deal, now that cooperation is supposed to be taken forward. Try and do that in lockstep, because having expecting businesses to not only read the text but differing interpretations of guidance. The last thing I'll say on that is when that summary, when those summaries of the deal came out before the text, the level of spin in both of their summaries was unbelievable.
0: Uh, yeah, I think uh, even some of us who aren't good at reading trade agreements notice that. Anna, just a couple more, a couple more questions, and then I'm going to throw in one as well on Northern Ireland. A couple more questions. Uh, You noted before, I think, that we were running it very close to the wire on some of the critical systems that they weren't uh, weren't up and running at the start of the month. They hadn't been tested fully and that there were still shortages of customs agents who might be expected to be more across these formalities and help businesses through them than the businesses themselves. Have you got any updates on uh, on where we are on those as we stand three and a half days away?
2: Uh, the short answer is no, which uh, in itself, I think, gives you <laughs> all the answer you need. Um, we, we, well, I would say we know, but we don't actually know. We, we, we understand that uh, the main system, so GVMS went live and the full functionality um, was available on the 21st. Uh, as far as I understand. Uh, so, so no, we don't actually have any, uh, any updates. I think all these problems, so this is slightly different. This is border res- readiness. So this is the readiness of IT systems, uh, border facilities, ports, uh, and so on, and, and uh, government uh, IT systems. And all this is still a concern, as well as lack of uh, sufficient amount of customs uh, agents on the private sector side so the people that would help companies uh submit these documents and and uh deal with these formalities so all of this is still a concern uh, that that was always going to be our our weakest spot and and it's very likely um that you know that that it, this will be exactly where would problems will arise on the first of, of of January we know that we've had problems in some of our ports like Felixstowe and and Southampton, Southampton and so on um with um with with container ports and with with capacity, uh, and we know that uh, we've been having problems uh, in Dover that relate to the coronavirus pandemic and and um, and holdups there so this the, we're not starting from zero is what I'm trying to say we're, We already have problems in terms of logistics, and they're only going to get worse as time goes by in the next couple of days.
3: Ali. Um, you know, just uh, Anna's right to say that sort of there are the, the IT systems, Sort of, it, it's it's one thing to have government IT systems be ready, it's another thing to have them gel with everyone else's software, um, you know, which is why I think some of the software trade associations were crying out not long before the deal saying, you know, um, we'll do what we can, but we are in serious sort of um, least worst option territory here because we don't have any time to test our own software updates that businesses are going to use that have to interact and interface with the government IT system. So, you know, and, and there's latitude I think that there that both sides have to, to adjust. It's just you don't know until the first of January exactly how that's going to work together and how um, uh, what people are going to do on the ground, because I think there is an assumption that you know, and this is what we certainly say to all of our members, is an assumption that just because the single market and customs union on paper is uniform, <clears throat> that that's the same thing. You know, every customs authority at the border is going to act the same, and that's not even the case before Brexit. So I think particularly trying to anticipate in advance of January first, what it's going to look like, is the biggest uncertainty.
0: So Anna, just a, just a question on Northern Ireland. We know that the GB Northern Ireland border will be different, and not least because the UK is operating the de facto EU border there, but there have been some agreements in the joint committee even before we got this deal deal done. Can we be confident that that border at least is going to operate relatively smoothly on the 1st of January?
2: Um, no, just because, again, we yes, we have now, uh, I wouldn't say clarity, because again, Uh, coming back to what Ali mentioned, we're still having conversations with HMRC and with the uh, team behind uh, the new government-sponsored system in uh, in Northern Ireland, so TSS, Trader Support Service, about details and how exactly things are going to work in practice. But we do now know what the system is going to be. We have a new, again, Trusted Trader Program, not to be confused with the AEO Trusted Trader uh, General Program, but a special program for Northern Ireland. We have uh, we finally, after over a year, now understand which goods are considered to be at risk, more or less, and how it's all going to work. But again, there's this difference between knowing the high-level principles and, and seeing how it works on the ground. The, the Trusted Trader Programme, which allows companies in GB to move goods into an NI uh, that are not considered at risk and therefore are not subject to tariffs, um, uh, that's that's now... Uh, available and companies can register for that. And we're seeing how how that process works. What's going to happen on the 1st of January? Again, it's the same thing that Ali mentioned. There's too many factors, too many actors, too many things that can go wrong for us to be confident. And again, it's a question of how you then um, apply the protocol and the new arrangements around that protocol and the agreement at the same time. And for that, again, we need guidance, we need clarity, uh, we need to know more. You know, the fact that uh, I think uh, uh, both Ali, myself and, and, and Sally, when we're advising clients, for example, when I've been advising clients over the last couple of days or, or weeks, I don't even refer them to the guidance because the guidance is way too late. You repeat things that you hear from other people, you repeat um, things that you hear directly from HMRC, that you hear on stakeholder calls, but the guidance comes way way after that. The guidance is a couple of weeks late compared to the information we're getting. So, again, if if a company doesn't have someone to steer them through this to to help them and they're only relying on what they can find find on on the government website, I don't think the 1st of January is in any way on any of these borders uh, a realistic um, goal.
0: Maddie, just a quick comment. Do you think the government's ready for this degree of chaos? (laughs) I mean, I I think think it's
1: actually doing this guidance. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think on the on the guidance point, I mean, I think I completely echo what everyone's already said. I do think it's it's really shocking that they didn't have guidance ready to go as soon as that deal was published. Um, and I think that you know one of the big challenges for the government will be communicating quite how much changes even with a deal. That's sort of one of the big sort of just broader communication points. And I think watching um, the prime minister on Christmas Eve saying that there'll be no new non tariff barriers, for example, I mean, I think there was a lot of sort of outcry on Twitter about that. But you know that's not helpful it doesn't you know that there's a real problem about not not communicating quite what is changing what it means in practice and and you know you know the team and I we sort of combed through the agreement the other day but um, we're not all trade lawyers and it is very dense and it's very difficult to understand you know we're going to be looking at it again like you know again this week because it's complicated and, and I think that that's that's a real problem so I think sort of just to sort of add add to that I think that in terms of how ready the government Is for the sort of impending chaos. I mean, it's sort of it's 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 difficult because I think that it depends sort of who you speak to. I think some officials feel relatively confident. You know, they've been planning for this for a long time. They know that disruption is coming, deal or no deal. So they've got sort of plans on how to manage disruption um in Kent for example you know they've got their check and HGV as ready service um and and they've and you know they've obviously had a bit of a dry run um in terms of activating elements of Operation Brock um over the last week so you know lorries at Manson Airport for example and M20 sort of having lots of lorries queuing down there so so there's sort of you know I think there's a sort of a, a bit of confidence for some that they think that you know, okay, we have we have sort of um, thought through quite a lot of what the disruption looks like. But I think the biggest challenge for them is going to be the sort of unknown unknown is the things that they haven't thought about that actually just sort of happen. and I mean I think the sort of I think a really good example is the fact that um, the sort of new uh, uh, variant of coronavirus meant suddenly that the port you know the ports um, with France they, the, the border was closed I mean that was something that no one had anticipated at all um, and so I think that's something that is going to be the biggest challenge in January is is sort of everything that Ali, Anna and Sally have already said in terms of sort of ensuring businesses know what's changing, that they can cope with the change, ensuring that that the government systems go live, but also how sort of other issues will interfere and make things more difficult. Um, Jill, I think you were saying the other week that sort of quite a lot of bad weather is forecast for January, February, you know, that's going to have an impact. So so I think, you know, the government has obviously been thinking about this. It, it will be standing up sort of, um, you know, operational centres to try and manage um what what happens in january but i think it's still going to be very challenging for a, when they're actually confronted with with the reality ali just really briefly um because i know we're talking a lot about goods here relative to services just really briefly I mean, it is worth
3: noting that while this is not a great basis on which to plan and i think that's the impact you know we have to think about is that you know fine, the government's making provisions, but is that going to actually help business? It still is worth noting that um, there is, I wouldn't say every chance, but there is certainly a chance that um, in the areas that that governments and countries can control, i.e. imports, that they do take an approach on the day, the day after, the day after, that really prioritizes flow over everything else, you know, but we are, that's the difficulty I think businesses have is you're seeing, you're spelling out all of these potential contingency scenarios that still could happen based purely on a text, on what the paper says. And then it may be well be, particularly for the UK side, for HMRC and all the other um, agencies that intervene at the border, that flow. You know, we've had lots of um, presentations about sort of prioritization of goods flow uh, that will hopefully kick into effect. But it's hard to use that as a business to plan and say, I won't have to worry about it. They're going to wave through everything because that's not something the government can or should um, responsibly say. They have to sort of set out what the actual changes are going to be. But then on the day, it might be different.
0: OK, well, hopefully the EU still has a few days to do that now that the EU ambassadors have formally approved the deal. So maybe there might be some unilateral easements there because obviously the UK government's announced it's going to phase in the full-fat border uh, at UK ports. Um, Sally, everyone's saying this is a thin deal for services. I just wondered if you could spell out for us what that actually might mean in practice. Let's start with that's sort a of rather un. Invisible export of professional services. So uh, things like accountancy, we talked a bit about lawyers earlier, but other people, uh, management consultants, uh, architects, other people who go and do business in the EU or with the EU, how much harder will it be for them to do business?
4: So when I'm thinking about these things for service providers, I break it down into two separate questions. The first question is can I physically get my Service provider, my employee, or my partner, or whoever it might be, to my client, because we all know, and I think COVID pandemic has demonstrated that nothing is face to face contact. And that's a a mobility question. That's about the freedom to provide business services in another member state, and that's the first question that has to be answered. The second question is: having got my employee to the right place, is he or she legally permitted? under the laws of that member state to provide their professional service to a client? And that's a separate question and you have to be able to answer both of those questions positively uh, in order to be able to keep trading. So if we start with the, the mobility question, first of all, can UK nationals travel to the EU without a visa? And that's going to be a large concern for many businesses once travel resumes after the pandemic. And unfortunately, the answer is really complex because it depends on the purpose of the trip and the member state that's the end destination. So very basically, if a traveller is simply making a visit, business or otherwise, then a British national can travel to the EU for 90 days in any 180 day rolling period for a visit purpose. And we are expecting that border officers are going to be asking people whether they're travelling for a visit and exactly what that means, because sadly, the definition of a visit is pretty, pretty limited.
0: So, so, uh, Sally, just so my business trips count alongside my holidays in EU countries for the purpose of that 90 days. Is that right or?
4: That is absolutely right for some, but not quite all member states. There are a handful of member states that could count any 90 days in the EU towards the limit. There are a handful of member states which say, no, we're only counting 90 days within our borders. Uh, and worse, there's a list of 11 different permitted activities that count as business visits. Um, and some are obvious, like trade fairs and exhibitions or meetings. Some are not. So there are some things that simply won't count within the 11 and therefore won't be business visits at all. And then back to our old friend's reservations, there are something like 30 reservations by state in respect of the 11 activities that are otherwise permitted, where those particular member states have said, no, not for us. Thank you so very much. So business visits are going to get much more complicated. And unfortunately, you are going to have to look at the rules for every specific member state you want to provide services in to determine whether you need a visa or not to to keep going and doing that thing. And then it gets even worse. So business visits for establishment purposes, so to set up a new business, are treated differently as our contractual service providers and independent professionals. And so too are people who are looking to do intercompany transfers, which definitely will need a visa. So the whole mobility part from one January, massively more complicated. And these things will need to be tracked and companies will need to work out which of their employees are at or close to their 90-day limits, including therefore having to track holidays, which they wouldn't otherwise have to have done. It's messy.
0: So Sally, can I ask you a question that stumped even James Kane on the IFG podcast yesterday? If I'm, uh, say I'm a management consultant and I've got two employees, one with a British passport and one who has an Irish passport as well. Will the same rules apply to both of them because they're employees of a British-based company and I'm sending them both abroad into the EU to do business? Or will the guy with the Irish passport find out that he's almost a sort of more favoured employee because he can do business without these restrictions?
4: So when it comes to purely the mobility question the Irish employee is at an advantage because that Irish employee can travel more freely than the British national can, for sure. But now we move on to the second part of of my questions, which is, can that person legally provide that service if if they're able to get into the territory at all? And there it's not so obvious that the Irish national will be at an advantage because it will depend on whether or not there needs the, the, there needs to be a professional qualification or license or authorization to provide that service. So this is where management consultancy is different from say law, because management consultancy is an unregulated profession. And so a- anyone can set themselves up and claim to be a management consultant. And therefore the Irish and the British national in your hypothetical example, can both provide management consultancy services across the board. Open brackets, subject to reservations, close brackets.
0: OK, but, um, but my accountants can't because that's regulated.
4: Well, then, then there's, you come to a slightly different question again, because you can't just say all regulated professions have the same restrictions applied to them. So lawyers, for example, the regulation typically applies at the level of the individual. So you would need to look at whether that individual, under the rules of each individual member state, was entitled to provide legal services or not. Under the terms of the Free Trade Agreement, it looks as though uh, an English lawyer could provide English legal advice and international legal advice uh, in the EU, but couldn't advise on EU law, even if they were otherwise qualified to do so. Uh, tax, a tax lawyer probably can, because tax is a largely unregulated profession. Audit and accountancy is slightly different because typically accounting and audit firms are regulated at the firm level rather than the level of the individual partner or, or provider. So it's really difficult to answer that question. And so for a, an Irish auditor holding an English audit qualification would be able to travel to a member state more freely than a British auditor holding a British audit qualification would, but would not be able... To sign off an audit opinion any more readily.
0: Okay, I'm just going to ask you one last mobility question, uh, and then I'm going to bring in Ali quickly. Um, what about freelancers? We've seen lots of concerns from musicians. I had a question the other week from a, a journalist who covers cycling races in the Netherlands from the UK, but whether he could still go and do that or not. What's the position on on those sorts of you know independent professionals, if you like?
4: So independent professionals have got yet a different set of rules applying to them. Uh, There's a named list of occupations, and they're relatively broad. Um, The the musician is not going to be happy because musicians aren't on the list. Uh, Sports professionals aren't on the list. So kind of rugby matches, cycling races in the first couple of weeks after January are quite possibly going to be disrupted. Your journalist friends may well be able to go to cover a cycling race, but might well find that British cyclists aren't going to be among the races.
0: Okay. Okay. Ali, you want to come in? Yeah, just to, you know, amplify, because I think
3: very often this will sound theoretical, the, until you start getting into the case studies and the questions you get it from businesses. So if I were to just take a sample of some of the questions that we get that I've gotten in the last few days about services. And keeping in mind, it's also, you know, not just about the mobility provisions and how you're able to establish yourself, but also what that means for how you account for payment. You know, um, can you carry... VAT seems to be a constant question, both for goods and services. They're treated differently in any event, even right now, and um, to a certain extent. Uh, but, for example, you know... I think what Sally is sort of pointing out there is really important to, to underline, which is, you know, you sometimes hear people arguing, well, there's no single market in services, it's not going to be much different now. And I think you're looking at that probably, and Sally can speak to that better than I can, um, too sectorally in a sense that, you know, people don't realize what the underpinning frameworks are. So fine. Financial services is much more uh, regulated and harmonized at EU law, so it's very clear, I think, to point to the differences. But even for those that are not as harmonized or regulated in the EU, that freedom of establishment provision makes a huge world of difference for how you actually account for some of this stuff. Um, So I think it's quite frustrating when people say, well, we don't have a single market in services now. What's going to be the difference? Actually, the stuff that underpins it, what I call the back-end stuff, which companies care about when it comes to their bottom line, that's the stuff that really will matter.
4: Oh, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more, Ali. It's an absolute barefaced lie to say there isn't a single market for services. For for sure, it's not as advanced as a single market for goods, but it it's there and it makes a massive difference to the ability of service providers to actually trade what they do. And
0: and we've mentioned business services, um, Sally, but we haven't got on to financial services. Um the Chancellor's, I think, uh, given some interviews saying he thinks, he didn't quite say we could prosper mightily for financial services outside, uh, outside the EU with no equivalence decision, but we don't see any sign yet of that equivalence decision coming. What do you think this means? Should, business, should financial services businesses basically be planning on the basis that they're not going to get equivalence anytime soon? And are they ready for that?
4: I think it would be unfair to say they're not going to get equivalence any time soon. I think what actually happened was that the two sides ran out of time to negotiate it. So it's another can kicked down the road. Both sides have committed to setting out a, a framework for regulatory cooperation in financial services by March. And they're going to, as part of that, discuss the equivalence decisions which the EU has yet to make on financial services. So the EU had already made a temporary equivalence decision in respect of clearing for 18 months and central securities depositories uh, because they're so important for EU markets as well as UK markets. Um, And we're going to see whether those temporary equivalence decisions will be extended, whether a couple more will be added. Uh, But the EU has not otherwise mirrored the UK's equivalence decisions or taken steps to smooth that transition. Um, As an aside, this is yet another example, if one were needed, of why implementation matters so much in the context of free trade agreements. So we know that there's going to be a framework, we know both sides have committed to try and come to a sensible decision, um, but that's no guarantee that it will come or will come on a timely basis or will come in the format that people are hoping for. Something like 25 different new committees or working groups of councils are set up as part of this deal uh, to try to smooth out the implementation. But 25 committees is a huge number of additional pieces of, of administration to work through from the two governments, and you start to appreciate just how much still needs to be hashed out between them.
0: Okay, so this is still a work in progress, notwithstanding mm-hmm. the fact that we have had it presented to us as a done deal.
4: Oh, absolutely. It's a great framework to keep discussions going. But so much of the implementation is pencil strokes at best, with no colour yet filled in.
0: I'm just, I'm just interested, uh, maybe to Ali and Anna, about whether there are areas where we're worried that uh, you know, either unilateral decisions may not be forthcoming. You mentioned the temporary stay of execution on data, which matters a lot. Some of the stuff on SPS listing and things like that. Are there er- does this provide a certain enough framework for doing business with the EU, Ali? Take what you can get. Um, you know, it's a baseline, I think,
3: and, and this is where you really need, even in implementation and the guidance, to amplify Sally's point. You really need government and the EU to be really straight um, and and not try and spin things. And I think, whereas the EU sort of summary went a little bit over the top in saying, "Well, this is because the UK refuses to align." I felt like some of the go- summaries from government weren't really clear about this is a baseline and we will, you know, add to it, but it means that particularly even looking at the sum of potential for uh, a sort of um, cross retaliation in terms of tariffs, if regulatory standards diverge, I won't get into the sort of uncertainty that that could make for people who were sitting there and going, I think particularly from an investment perspective, you, you know, just because let's say the U S and Canada have um, squabbles and disputes, they've always had that businesses have worked around it. Um, just applying that to a much, you know, a scale of that to the UK, which is a much smaller market, I think the concern is, is that you start making UK look really unstable. Um, not, I don't mean politically unstable, but just too unstable to sort of um, certainly base your either manufacturing plant in, for example, if you're worried that's going to happen. So we really need the government to be very clear about what this is and what it isn't. And I think that goes right down to guidance because, you know, um, we had complaints from businesses before the deal that some of the guidance wasn't really being what they felt they they weren't they didn't feel like they were being levelled with effectively and you need to level with businesses if your guidance is to actually be of any use for planning and adjustments.
0: Anna, what do you think government needs to say to businesses now? I mean, in terms
2: of of, of certainty, this is um, I think Sally said it best. It's the framework. It's a great framework for now, with a potential to keep discussing going forward. It's a good baseline and can be left at face at value as it is now. Or the discussion can be taken further. I think in terms of long-term certainty, um, the main question for me is what's going to happen once the people in the UK realise what this deal actually means in practice. Not maybe even so much this deal, but what Brexit means in practice. Once we actually start feeling the impact of the changes, what's going to happen now? And the senses are one of the options is that the negotiations will continue. That this deal is only the first step, and the relationship will continue. Also, will continue changing. Uh, different uh, additional agreements are are going to uh, eventually uh, happen. Now, I don't want to mention Switzerland here, but there's also this option that that this relationship will be very dynamic. And while we have more or less an understanding what's going to happen in the next six months, as Sally mentioned, there are areas where things might change. So it doesn't. It's not. It's not a done deal. It's not a final situation. It's not the final terms of trade that businesses will be dealing with over the next couple of decades. And I think okay. the cost and changes will be will be a challenge.
0: And final words, Sally. Sally, the CBI seem to think that if we got a deal that was good for goods, the sort of EU's big interests, uh, we could add for services. Do you think that's right?
4: No, it's really quite difficult to see how the services provisions would be materially improved because services has been considered in the context of this deal and deliberately, explicitly carved out in the main. Financial services will get its equivalence decisions, one hopes. But after that, it becomes much more problematic to see how easements and facilitations could be made in the context of this this particular deal. I, I think services has got a long way to go And a hard road to tread before it gets back to anything like the level of market access it had before.
0: We have to close there, but I just want to say thanks to our excellent panel Anna Jazewska, Ali Renison, Sally Jones, and Maddie Timont Jack. I think you can tell from that there was a lot more to be said about the whole issue of what this Brexit deal does and doesn't mean, but two big takeouts at the end. One, a message to government, for goodness sake, get guidance out there now as soon as possible. You've set businesses a really difficult task to be ready by taking this up to the wire. They need to be able to use the agreement you've negotiated. Second message, for those of you hoping that the thin deal on services might get a lot thicker, this might be about as good as it gets. And that's where we're going to close. Remember to check out as well our podcast with the IFG team Brexit taking you through in painstaking but not at all painful detail the Brexit deal on our IFG Live. Do check those out. Check out the explainer and watch out because Brexit may be done on the 31st of December but there'll still be a lot more to say as we head into 2021. That's all from me. Thanks and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more, and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.